I took a little trip last week across Tennessee over into the Smoky Mountains. And when I came down the other side, I was in Crab Creek, North Carolina, a little bitty town. And I was visiting the graves of uh, Billy and Benny McCrary. They were listed in the Guinness Book of World's Records as the world's largest twins. Each of them weighed over 750 pounds. As the story goes, a Life magazine photographer saw them at the North Carolina Apple Festival in Hendersonville and took a picture of both of them riding mini bikes. And the people from Guinness Book of World's Records saw that photo in Life magazine and hunted them down and found out that they actually were the world's largest twins. They listed them in the book. And from that point, Honda Motorcycles did a promotion where they hired them to ride motorcycles 3,000 miles from New York to Los Angeles to show how durable Honda Motorcycles were. And then when they got there, they were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Gory Guerrero, who is a legendary wrestling promoter, saw that and decided these guys should be a tag team wrestling duo. So he called them the McGuire Twins. And they wrestled for over 14 years, and they supposedly were undefeated in that entire time. And anybody listening to this show knows that I'm a bit of a vintage wrestling nerd, and I'd seen that iconic photo of the McCrary twins so many times throughout my life. I was really happy to get to go and pay my respects. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Webb Wilder. Webb is a singer and a songwriter, and you can find out everything you need to know about Webb at webwilder.com. The first time I saw Webb was at the Vogue Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana, back in the early 90s, maybe. It was a really good show. Webb's just a great entertainer. I've wanted to have Webb on the show for quite a while, and I ran into him a couple weeks ago at a bar, and I said, hey, Webb, how you doing? It's good to see you again, and asked him if he would be on, and he was all for it, so I was all excited about it. But Webb was nice enough to invite me into his home here in Nashville, and we sat down, and he shared some great stories. Here's Webb Wilder. Well, yeah, it was incredible for me. And, um, you know, I guess teenagers are this way from the dawn of rock and roll through the present. I mean, if you're already a fan of a band and you go see them live, it's going to be a big deal for you, I guess. But So I can't know how other people feel. But for me, it was unbelievably magical and, and, and life-changing. 
because I refer to it all the time, the most magical live rock and roll event I've ever seen, and it really filled me with something, uh, was the faces. And I, and I saw the Stones at what I think was the ultimate time to see them live. I mean, granted, the Brian Jones era is a thing unto itself, and if you'd seen the best of that, that would have been really great. Exile was a new album in 72. Stevie Wonder was the opening act. Mick Taylor and Keith Richards doing all that material. That was pretty great. But that was more like, yes, it's charismatic and it's great and these people are icons. The Faces was more magical is the word I always get back to. The just this, this, you know, the Faces are so just, you talk about the Faces all day, but you know, it's like almost like the NRBQ meets the Stones because they were anti-heroic, but they were glam. And they were roots. And in an era of um, heroic lead guitarists, Woody epitomized the rhythm lead player. And they looked so cool. And their clothes and their hair and, and the legacy of the small faces and Rod Stewart's singing and his showmanship and the camaraderie, you know, and it, and it all uh, lived up to its promise that the photographs and the records had given me. It was 71 at the warehouse. And I'm very proud to say that I've uh, gotten to know Mac a little bit. And uh, he and I are, are friendly, and it, it meant a lot to me that uh, he was at our show during Americana Fest. And one of the first people I saw when I went into the wings, after what I thought was a good set of ours, was Mac. And it was a big smile on his face, and he's, he's a great guy. And he he is, I don't know what the other guys are really like, because I've never met them. He epitomizes that face's personality uh, that you were so that I was so fascinated with that uh, affable, witty, as the Brits would say, Jack the Lad kind of thing, you know. And uh, God bless him, you know, it, it's just too much. So, but but he told me that at that show at the warehouse in New Orleans, everybody but Rod and Kenny had been dosed with acid, <laughs> which is pretty good. You don't want the drummer or the singer, you know, beyond repair. And I guess Woody, you know, uh, has uh, walked through fire as a drug paratrooper, and 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 Mac too, but. Wow. But I look back and I go like, okay, there were no seats. There were funky rugs on the floor. People smoked cigarettes and pot. Why didn't it burn down? <laughs> and so I wish I had clearer memories of it. But um, the first show I saw there was Mont the Hoople. Yeah. And that I could talk about that a lot too. But it was really, uh, you know, the, the media tells you if you're from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you're a dumb hick. And man, I've been to some places really north of there that are far less to offer. I think it was the first British band I ever saw. I think I was 17 years old. And um, they had not had the hit with all the young dudes. Wildlife was the new album, I believe, which was kind of their English cowboy album. And uh, like their Tumbleweed Connection or whatever, in a, in a sense. You know, it's kind of a country rock album. They weren't maybe quite ready to headline the warehouse. And, and, and I've never met Ian Hunter. You know, I've recorded two of his songs, and he sent me a message through another guy saying how much he liked my hour arrangement of uh, big time but which was meant a lot to me but um but he was always kind of pissed off on stage in a way I, th I think he just so rock and roll you know but he was a little bit not pleased that they didn't have a bigger crowd by the way brownsville station opened up uh. and wow they were like the first like sticky comedy but could deliver the goods and maybe the last rock and roll band i ever saw well maybe unknown henson right i guess the the lineup you know original lineup you know it was um Verdon Allen and Overend Watts and Buffin and Mick Ralphs and uh, Ian Hunter. 
and they looked cool. And, you know, in the earliest days of glam, before it really got out of control and people were really dressing like women, people were dressing pretty cool, these guys, you know. And so they had like, I was fascinated by all their boots. Like Buffin, the drummer, had baby blue boots on. <laughs> you know, and uh, and one of them, maybe it was Ian Hunter, had like, you know, kind of yellow or cream suede boots. And Overin Watts had his pants stuffed in his boots that came up real high. And they had... uh colorful spangles of leather sewed all over them, you know, and wow. And uh, so two keyboards, you know, Mick Ralph's, you know, had like a one pickup Epiphone coronet through two high watt half stacks. Ian Hunter had the RMI electric piano and one of the most rock and roll looking guitars ever made, you know, the reverse Firebird one Gibson. And at some point, let's see, he grabbed a roadie by the hair and screamed in his ear kicked over the RMI electric piano and they, they slid out another one. <laughs> and, um, and you know, Bobby field turned me on to so much stuff and he was from Hattiesburg and he's, he's two years older than me. And so he had seen them at the warehouse open for Jethro Tull and they did darkness, darkness by the young bloods and Mick Ralph sang it. He can sing real high, you know, like, like Neil Young or something. And, um, he said, you got to see this band. And so, you know, I lied to my mother, spent the night at his house, told, you know, and uh, we went down there and and he'd noticed that they did It'll Be Me by Jerry Lee Lewis. That kind of went right by me. But I started putting it together that really, I think that's when I really realized there was a difference between rock and rock and roll. I actually remember a lot about that night. So, you know, I was trying to, to look sharp during those days too. And I was wearing, you know, Western shirts, bell bottoms, Italian boots, you know. And uh, I was walking down Chapatula Street and I was just walking on air after seeing that concert. And my glove leather Italian boots snagged a rugged old stone in a stone wall and just tore the hell out of it. <laughs> so then we get in the car and we dr start driving back and we break down in Slidell, Mississippi, uh, Slidell, Louisiana. And there's no cell phones. You know, there's a couple of girls, there's like five people in the car or something. And, uh, what are we going to do? So we get out of the car and uh, this is quite an adventure at this point, you know, and this guy pulls over, I guess. And it seems like, like Bobby and I rode with this character. His name was, I think his name was Byron Locke or Lot. He introduced himself to us and he took us like into Slidell, which is, was a famous area for like long hairs being thrown in jail and getting their haircut by the sheriff. Well, maybe that was Pearl River, but that's near there. And uh, anyway, used a phone. We called this good-hearted guy who'd been a roadie for this band Bobby'd been in and had his brain. He came down there and got us. And so this guy, Byron Locke or whatever his name was, said, uh, well, you can leave your car there. Don't worry about it. You know, ain't nobody going to steal it. I do all the stealing that's done around here. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then, so then we had to ride back the next day in the wrecker with the guy that owned, whose daddy owned the wrecker service who I'd gone to school with. And, and he was like a straight kind of guy and you know, we're telling him, yeah, we saw this band Mott the Hoople. And we, we, it was as though we told him, you know, uh, we left a spaceship, you know, at the high school or something. You know? And so they towed it back and all that stuff. It was a great night, man. But wow. But Tipitina's, you know, is an institution in New Orleans. And uh, I'd been in a band before I moved to Nashville. I moved to Nashville in 82 called The Drapes. And we had played there. A bunch of times on like Wednesdays or something, you know, but, but this was after Nashville, Webb Wilder and the Beatnecks. And, uh, we were to open for Jerry Lee Lewis at Tipitina's and, uh, 
I'm a fan, you know, we were into it. And, um, I just read the new book by Rick Bragg about Jerry Lee. And so I had thought when we saw Jerry Lee was right after he nearly died from the stomach thing, but it was probably more distance and time had passed since that than I realized at the time. So anyway, we're the dressing room upstairs is funky at Tipitina's and I'd been in there with the drapes a million times and, you know, sound check and we're sitting around and there's a table. And so, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis walks in. This is like a dream. This is like otherworldly, surreal, really, for me. Because, I don't know, you just don't imagine it happening this way. So ordinary. It's so extraordinary. You know? So you, me and the band are sitting around the table, and Jerry Lee Lewis walks in. Well, you know, I'm from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He's from Faraday, Louisiana. I don't know what to do. You don't want to be rude. So I stick out my hand. Hey, Webb Wilder goes, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, just like you'd meet somebody who's not Jerry Lee Lewis. Right. You know, and, and he sits down at the table and we're like, hey, man, we're glad to be here. I don't know. It's very, it was, he was nice to us, you know, because we'd heard all these stories. Right. He looked kind of dead eyed. You know, it's hard to describe how he looked right in the eyes, you know. Uh, but, man, he didn't give us anything but courtesy, you know. And uh, I thought he's had this stomach problem, you know, uh, maybe maybe he's not drinking or something. And uh, he asked if anybody had a B.C. powder which I've never really owned in my life, right? That's the headache powder? Yeah. And Cletus, our bass player at the time, his real character, said, no, I've got a goodie, which is even more rockabilly. <laughs> and, and, and Jerry said, that's even better. And so he takes it. I don't remember the order in which these things happen. And, and once again, I was thinking, well, maybe he's not drinking anymore. Because I was actually kind of concerned about the whole stomach thing. Because it had been ballyhooed as like, he nearly died holding his stomach. All this. And, uh. Out of out of seemingly nowhere, I don't know where this came from. A brown bag appears because I hadn't seen him walk in with it or anything, and he pulls out a bottle that says Calvert, the soft whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is not happening. This is just a movie, and and we exchange courtesies, and he goes to the sound check or whatever. So you know, we we get out, and we open up the first set. Tipitinas. I wish I knew what night of the week this was. Uh, Friday, it says on the poster. I've got the poster, folks. So we do our set, and then he does his first set. And and what I remember about it was that, you know, if you if you we Dan and I saw Lisa Marie Presley one time, and it's an interesting, odd assortment of a demographic of a crowd that would come to see her because of the Elvis thing and all that. So it's sort of that same way for that first set by Jerry Lee. You had the blue hairs and all, and the set was kind of tame. And Jerry Lee, of course, has never been bound by arrangements, lyrics, or anything, you know. And uh, so, for instance, High School Confidential, he does it without the introduction, you know, because the introduction is like, honey, get your da ba dee ba dee 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 da bump, bump, bump. Doesn't do that. He just goes, he doesn't even, I don't know if he counts it down. He just goes, rocking at the high school hop. And he's just into it. And pretty much every song, However, it started, he would rush it, and the drummer would have to find his, you know, high octane tempo. But it was sort of a reserved set, and then he takes a break. We do another set. Then he comes back, and this is the real set. And, like, interestingly enough, what I remember about that set was High School Confidential does the introduction. Honey, get your sets because I've done a deedled up and done a rock and bump, bump. Honey, get your dancing shoes, bump, bump, because of jukebox blowing. And it's rocking, man. And it's a different crowd, sort of. You know, it's later. More people have arrived. Some of the people have left. And uh, if you see pictures of him live, you know, there's always like a twin reverb or a super reverb on tilt back legs. And that's because, and this is brilliant, he plays real pianos and he's got to hear them. 
And he puts a mic in the piano and puts it through a Fender amp. So he borrowed Donnie Roberts' Super Reverb that night. And so he owned the Super Reverb that Jerry Lee Lewis played through. The greatest rock and roll show I've ever seen was Jerry Lee Lewis. It was probably 10 or 11 years after that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to ask you, my dad met Jerry Lee back in the 70s, and he got to shake hands with him. And my dad would always say that he had the softest hands of anybody he'd ever met. It's obvious he'd never done an honest day's work in his life, which made my dad love him Yeah, uh, even more than he already did. Did you notice anything about his hands when you shook his hands? I didn't notice that. I noticed his eyes were just real, you know, uh, people have written about the animal-like eyes or something. They kind of had a, a, a non-sparkle in them. But he was really nice to us, and um, he... Um, I don't know why I said this. I'm a whiner and a complainer, and I'm, I'm sorry to the world for that. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you find yourself talking to Jared Lee Lewis. I've had these experiences where I've been talking to really famous people, and I'm trying to not germ them or be uncool. And, you, you know, depending on how much of a fan you are, it's hard. I, I don't know why. So I said, uh, well, Jerry Lee, what about this touring? It's, it's hard, isn't it? And he goes, hard, my boy. <laughs> and Jimmy Lester, the drummer for the Beatnecks for many years, said uh he remembered i didn't remember this that there was a manager kind of guy and as they were leaving he goes jerry you got all your rings and everything like maybe he takes them off when he plays and then he was gone and it was just like wow man did we dream all this <laughs> back to you know you being a, a teenager one one being a teenager and being a fan of who you're a fan of um and these bills they used to do for rock shows, you know, triple bill, the warehouse, 1971, you had Ian Matthews, Southern Comfort, Deep Purple, and the Faces. Well, Deep Purple, you know, wound up in some Guinness Book of World Records kind of statistics as the loudest band in the world, you know. Richie Blackmore, I later found out, used 200-watt Marshalls, which Mike Doyle, who wrote the Marshall book, refers to that model as the pig. <laughs> so anyway... Deep Purple, Ian Matthews, Southern Comfort, pretty good. You know, probably didn't have a good mix because they're the first act or whatever. Don't remember a lot about it, but it was it was approved by my snobbery as on the right side of the hipness force. So then out comes Deep Purple. Loud as hell. And, you know, I'm not really a metal guy or anything, and this was kind of like the dawn of heavy metal. I mean, I like the early Deep Purple, you know, Go Now. Not Go Now, but, I mean, Kentucky Woman and Hush and all that, you know. And now I can almost appreciate this thing, but I hated it then. So Ian Gilliland's the singer. He's hitting notes only dogs can hear, and it's loud. <laughs> I'm hearing them. They're hurting. And, uh, and then Richie Blackmore's got his Strat through, unbeknownst to me, a 200-watt Marshall. Full volume, scrubbing it on his ass. Maybe he's pissed because he's warming up for anybody, you know. And, uh, and we're like, fuck you, shooting him the bird and everything. We want our team. And so we're so, like, imagining how things are that they really aren't that we, we figure, well, the faces are going to be pissed off that they have to follow this crap. Well, they're probably pleased that they're headlining and having a smoke and a drink and laughing, you know, because that's the vibe. So when Rod Stewart comes out, he's just a masterful, charismatic, elfin showman. And he's like, you know, well, after a fine evening's entertainment of Southern Comfort, Deep Purple, how are you doing, you know, and all this stuff. And so then they go into their cover of Maybe I'm Amazed. And Ronnie Lane, the small faces, right? Tiny, truly elfin. And he starts singing it kind of on tiptoes, you know, Maybe I'm amazed by the way. And Rod Stewart's putting the hand to his ear and doing all these Al Jolson, but, you know, just stuff people don't do. It was just, it was just, it was like, is this the Peter Pan movie? You know, it was just magical. 
And then, of course, he takes a stance and comes in with the heroic vocal, and the race was on. Well, the Nick Lowe story is, uh, I've, I've kind of met Nick Lowe several times, and he's always very affable and personable and, and, and friendly. That's the good news. There's no bad news, really, in the story. And uh, the first time I met him was at an in-store thing in Austin. Uh, the, the week I was moving maybe back to Mississippi or something, and uh, they had this place called Inner Sanctum Records, and they would do things like that in early days for Elvis Costello and the attractions, Triple Bill, Mink DeVille, El, uh, Rock Pile. Elvis Costello and the Attractions. And as I was walking up to the record store, Elvis Costello and the Attractions were slinking out looking like greasy thugs. It was weird. You know, that was what the bag they were in at the time, I guess. And, um, but, you know, they were leaving. And I'll go in there and I meet Nick and he's very friendly. And I meet Dave, he's very reserved. But, you know, polite enough. And so that's that. And then so years pass and uh, that's like 77 or 6 or something. Uh, 7, 8. But then, then years later, you know, we've, we've got a couple of major deals under our belt. You know, we're on Zoo Praxis, BMG, and we have this song, Tough It Out, that's a kind of a, has a moment at Nat radio all across the country, you know. And so um, our label flew us to be part of Farm Aid in 92 in Dallas. Big DJ there at the time, Redbeard, had just added it. It was the most something song of that week. We had a two-song set that they cut in half. <laughs> you know, Anna. Yeah. And so, you know, we're there and uh, Roseanne Barr and, you know, Chris Christopherson, all these people are like hanging around and in the wings, you know, and Nils Lofgren and unbelievable, just another dream like thing. And so we have these rented marshals we've never seen, no sound check, and we hit Tough It Out as our only son. It's louder than God, you know, it's fun. How many people? Well, I don't know. You know, it, it was in some big stadium. Wow. Yeah. And so it, the crowd wasn't as big, I know, as it got later on. And so uh, later on, you know, Little Village played. John Cougar, Mellencamp played. And uh, he was putting off about a 20-foot bad vibe. I mean, you, 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 you <laughs> backstage, you just knew you didn't want to get near this guy. I'm sorry, Coog. And, uh, and, uh. What I remember seeing was, you know, I'm friends with David Grissom. He was playing with Mellencamp, and their their set was actually good, you know. And I saw them play, and I saw a Little Village play. I don't remember. I don't remember hearing anybody else play, so that's kind of dumb. But um, so I'm talking to, you know, at at some point. Oh, and and there's the other thing. Okay, our record company flies us in. We've got this big song at radio. We had to cancel a gig, I think, somewhere maybe. I don't know. And to do it, no money. You don't get paid, as I recall. And uh, they said, okay, now you have to leave. What? They wouldn't let you hang out? Well, somebody, Billy Joe Shaver or somebody, pulled some strings and got me Waylon's place in line. Or I didn't understand how, but I got to stay and my band had to leave. And I felt terrible about that. But I was going to stay. And, you know, I wound up talking to Jim Keltner and uh, Ry Cooter. I had an interesting 20-minute chat with Ry Cooter and, uh, and Nick. And Nick was great, you know. And so I'm like really digging talking to Nick. And I can't believe how well it's going. And even though I want to rein in my uh, obsessive fandom, I make the, I do that classic thing that I hate, the Nashville thing where you go, hey, man, want to write a song? You know? <laughs> so so I said, uh, at some point I said, well, man, gee, if you're ever in Nashville, you know, give me a call or maybe we can write a song or something. And he goes, 
I'm not much of a caller-upper, but I'm quite aware of you. <laughs> and, uh, and so then time is passing, and at some point he's wearing a full-length leather overcoat, like a Gestapo kind of thing, and he's, he's drinking beer and stuff, and he's, he's very pleasant, and, and he says, uh, have you heard Junior Brown? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, have you heard his song about the homeless? And then he starts singing it. And he's little in his cups, you know. And he goes, their house is made of cardboard. You know, and, and then this roadie rushes up and goes, Basher, we've got to go. And they whisk him away. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, I had gone to, um, I was born and raised in Hattiesburg, you know, and had spent most of my life there in uh, January of 76, moved to Austin and lived out there a couple of years, went back to Mississippi and then moved up here in 82 and been here ever since, you know. And uh, first year I was in Franklin and uh, then I got a house in town and, you know, um, had always worked with Bobby Field. He moved up here, you know, and uh, it was, and I was kind of a big fish in a little pond down there in this band called the Drapes, you know, and that was my thing and it was playing in a band you know and it was hard to do here you know there there's always been there's always been a hipness about nashville and an amazing talent pool and a under the radar thing that the people who were its detractors didn't know about and now it's totally flipped where oh it's the hippest place and they're pouring in you know and all that but um but there's always been a squareness too and back then people just sort of knuckled under to it, you know, and if they, they, the most talented person in anyone's hometown might've moved here, uh, and then tried to ply their trade in that square world. And, uh, you know, there were no telecasters being used in country music and, you know, that that's a Bakersfield and Memphis thing. And finally, you know, it found it thanks to Richard Bennett and Marty Stewart and, you know, later Brent Mason and stuff that changed. So, I mean, it was a real conservative time, you know, in, in the, and so everybody's trying to get a cut as a writer or they're trying to be a session man or whatever. And there's no band loyalty and everybody's kind of a mercenary because they're trying to make a living in the music business, which has always been nuts, you know? So I'm going like, man, how can I have a band, you know, and get them to stick with me and all this. And I was kind of bummed about it. You know, I turned 30 and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. And, but in the meantime, the, the, the people I knew here, I knew this guy named Dan Tyler, who was, one of my oldest friends and, and did so much for me. Um, and so he was from Mississippi and he had known my aunt a little bit. And her story is amazing. She and my uncle had a record label called trumpet records before I was born. And I just thought they closed it about the time I was born. So I just thought my uncle's in the furniture business, you know, he was, but they had recorded Elmore James and Sonny boy Williamson and all this amazing stuff. So he had crossed paths with her and she said, you should go hear my nephew's band. So he heard the drapes became a fan so I knew him and, and he really did tons, you know, with facilitating the first album and all this stuff. But, um, and I knew Tim Crackle, and, you know, Tim Crackle was a lot of things, but Tim Crackle in the, that are good. He was a writer, you know, he's a singer, he's a great guitar player, but he also had this pub rock kind of thing with his little three piece band. Um, the sluggers, Tim Crackle and the sluggers, they were my favorite band and the one I related to in town. So I got to know Tom Comet, who is, now my bass player, thank God, the Beatnecks bass player since 96. So Tom and Willis, the drummer and the bass player, were the first you know people I met. That's great to hear about Tim Crackle. I, no one's mentioned him on the show before, and he's a person worth mentioning. But uh, my buddy Charles um, got married in Louisville, and me and Tim played at his wedding. Wow. And uh, 
It was one, it just seemed like a really, really good guy. I wish you could have heard that little three-piece band they had. And of course, you know, they were really into NRBQ and stuff like that. So I would go to their gigs and uh, the Scorchers thing was happening and, and the Sluggers dug the Scorchers and, you know, they did Tim's song, uh, Greetings from Nashville, I think it's called. And uh, so Cantrell's was the epicenter of the whole punk kind of thing that, you know, punk had probably died where it originated in like New York and England by the time it happened in Austin and Nashville and stuff. But, uh, but anyway, all that was going on. There was a band called the white animals and, uh, nice guys who, uh, had this unique kind of music and, and this incredible business set up. And they had a manager and a label and they, the manager did the booking and ran the label and they played all over the country and they were, they were around and, uh, Jason, the Scorchers were coming on strong. And, you know, I saw the kind of famous gig at Cats Records, which was really the epicenter of a lot of things on uh, West End where Jason climbs the sign and chips his tooth on the mic and the whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Steve Earl's around to meet him. You know, he's hanging out in the clubs, you know, and he's playing an awful, like, Aspen or Memphis brand Stratocaster copy, you know, with a, a drummer and a bass player who were uh, not the strongest players in the world. And, um, wow. You know, and then you put out the little EP, you know, the pink and black EP and, uh, you know, went from there to all sorts of lofty heights, you know, and, uh, there was an interesting vibe out in the clubs and I, you know, I was in the clubs more often then and, uh, Vanderbilt radio was a big deal and that's where we first got airplay. And that's why we, when we did the, we re-released that album later on, we included Adam Dredd's introduction live at the exit end of, of our band. Cause he was, I think the first DJ to spin us. Were the shows well attended back then at Cantrell's or X? Yeah, yeah. Later on, you know, we didn't start playing. This was all, I was observing all this in like 82, 3, 4. You know, we started playing gigs in 85. And uh, The Sutler was our first headlining gig. And, uh, you know, in all the new publicity about The Sutler, nobody mentions anything that happened there prior to 90-something. But there was a lot going on there. But it was a cool place to hang out. But um, but the exit was a big deal then, of course. And uh, but later we would, you know, play the exit in and have to hire our own security, and still make money because it was so out of hand and crazy and crowded and everything. So yeah, uh, that seems amazing now. But it's true. You know, when, before I moved to Nashville in '82. I kind of knew two people in the music business and Dan Tyler here and Keith Sykes in Memphis. And Keith said, well, when you get to Nashville, you need to look up Dan Penn. He's like the original Bohemian. And that's, that's like a tip of the iceberg description of Dan, you know, because Dan kind of wrote the sixties, you know, and all those great songs. And, uh, so at some point the late great Jack Emerson, you know, uh, and Jack and Andy, you know, had McLennan had, you know, Praxis and, and that was, that's a whole story. You know, they managed the Scorchers and us and, Georgia Satellites, and at one time or another, Steve Forbert and John Hyatt and the Questionnaires. And if anybody was accomplishing anything outside of country music in Nashville, they were working with Praxis or they weren't accomplishing anything. And they were a wonderful uh, key hunk of the story of rock in Nashville. But um, so Jack hooked me up with a writing appointment with Dan. And this is like, Jack's been dead since 2003, and this was long before that. So you know, 20 years ago or something. And I wrote this song with Dan, never got to pin him down to write another one. And, uh, it's languished. It's never been on one of my records and we've now recorded it. And with any luck, it'll be on the album that comes out next that we're working on now. I'm very 
proud of that. And uh, you never count your chickens before they hatch, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be on there. We've got tracks on it now. Are you working with Joe McMahon on that? Yes and no. I recorded, I did the last album with Joe and I, I want to work with him some more. We did two tracks with him and his studio burned and it took some while, a while to get it fixed up. And, you know, I had to do something. So, um, Bob Williams, who plays guitar with me, you know, works at studio 19 a lot. And of course that's, that studios. I like it. It's got a funky old seventies vibe. That's where Ringo did Buku's of blues when it was called music city recorders. So we've been, we're, we've pretty much moved over there. So two of the albums will, two of the songs on the album will have been done with Joe. And then the rest looks like will be studio 19. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you inviting me into your home. Thanks for making it an option. I mean, I'm, I'm, but no, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And mainly what you heard from me today was a fan's perspective. And, uh, and that's okay with me because, you know, if, you, if you're not a good listener, you won't be a good player. And if you're not a fan, you won't know what to do. Thank you, man. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Webb for inviting me into his home here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Webb at webwilder.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.